So I got a question for you today. How many of you grew up with a table like this in the kitchen? Anybody? I did, yeah, right? Formica on the top, aluminum around the side, and chair, chairs that were made of vinyl, and if anything got spilled on them, they could wipe off really easily. It's really a cool old table that we found to um, spend some time with you today. Uh, to kind of cra- and I like this. Look at that. You don't even get those in the restaurant anymore, do they? The health department won't let you do it because, um, you know, everybody has to have everything that's antiseptically, you know, we're afraid of cooties again, you know, so it has to all be covered in paper. So, yeah, it's cool stuff. What we're doing today is we're, we're, we're and, and in the weeks ahead, we're going to be talking about um, some meal settings in the New Testament. And so to uh, set the stage, literally, for this today and to kind of get us in, in thinking about this for the next few weeks... Um, some of the tech team went out and took some photos for us today, uh, this week of some of the restaurants around town. And so I got a little quiz for you this morning as we start the time around scripture. We're going to show you some icons and then see if you know what restaurants they belong to from around town. So here's the first one. Take a look at the screen. Any idea where that might be from? Beach House. A lot of you know that really well. (sighs) Now, I want to tell you that... For some of you going, I've never been able to go there. Yeah, because it's quite expensive. And so we're, we're starting at the top and working our way down. <laughs> so you go, man, I've never been to there. Where are they going to go? So we're starting at the top and coming down from there, okay? So here's another icon that you could look at. Any idea where that might be? Cracker Barrel. By the way, when you go to the beach house, what do you eat? Macaroni and cheese. I've heard that people eat that. I like their crab cakes. The crab cakes are really good. What do you eat when you go to Cracker Barrel? Cornbread? Oh, okay. What about those, those eggs in a, in a blanket? You ever had that? Where the basket, eggs in a basket, pardon me, where they take um, sourdough bread and they cut the center out of it and then they put the egg in there and, you, and then they fry that and oh, that's really good stuff. Anybody want to go there for lunch? I'm ready right now. <laughs> Let's cut this short. <laughs> no, we won't. Okay, here's another icon. Monocles, right? Okay, yeah. What do you go when you when you go to Monocles? What do you eat? Pizza with what? Red sauce. How many dip their pizza in the red sauce? You know that uh, Leslie and uh, Leslie's parents. We recently uh, they recently moved to Decatur after living in North Carolina all their lives. And they've moved so that we can help them as they become a little bit older. And so they're living down at Imboden Creek Gardens. And they have an apartment down there. But they go down to the dining hall for their meals. And Dad, since he came to town and discovered Monaco's Pizza, we've had to go and buy a whole, I mean, a whole slew of those squirt bottles. And he's, he's putting it on everything down in the dining hall. He's <laughs> loving it. He's loving that red sauce. We got stock in Monaco's. We shoot at the rate we're going. All right, here's another icon. Crackles. When you go to Crackles, what do you eat? Cheeseburger. Or how about the lemon custard? All right, the lemon custard is really good there. Here's another one. This one's going to be a little more difficult for you. No, it's not Jimmy John's. Jan's East End Grill. There you go. Now, some of you go, what's to eat there? Well, there's lots to eat there, but mostly you go there, from my perspective, you go there to meet with ADM employees. Because if an... (laughs) If an ADM, that's out on Brush College Road, and if I get a call from an ADM, you know, person says, I got to have a, you know, can, can you come have coffee? I got to talk to you about something. 
always go to Jan's East End Grill because it's about the only thing out there to eat at, all right? And then I want you to see a few others to see what you eat there. Okay, the next one's oh, Charlie's. When you go to our Charlie's, what do you eat there, guys? The rolls? Oh, yeah. And the four services. That's the first time that somebody said that, all right? So, so the rolls are good there. Um, though um, uh, Candace will take care of you when you go there, right, Candace? She, she serves there, and so that's good. And um, I like their fish and chips sometimes. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, depending on who's cooking it. You never know. So it's, all right, here's another one. Il Forno. Out on Woodford, just down the road here. Great um, mushroom pizza with white sauce. Good stuff. One more or two more maybe. What do you do there? Dilly bars, Dilly bars or soft cream, soft serve ice cream dipped in chocolate. That's a deal. Uh, about a buck forty-nine, and you got yourself something to go for, right? All right. All right. A couple more here. Ah, a Decatur icon, right? Now, if you're new to town and you've not been to Paul's, you have not experienced Decatur yet. All right? It's, it's on, it's on um, Water Street coming north, just as you come over the viaduct from downtown. You've got to go to Paul's. You literally go in through that little white door there. It's a, an old screen door. As it opens, and you go in, and they got this furniture in there. They're still serving the same hamburgers that was made on <laughs> No, you go there for the food, but you know really why you go there? The ambience. The ambience. You just you 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 walk back 40 years and you go, this is what it was like. It's like this, okay? And then um, one more that I need to tell you is the for me is the piastre de resistance. Namely, you tell me let's go have lunch here, and I'm up for it because after all the years that we lived in Eastern Europe and you never knew what you were gonna eat over there, when we came back to the US. This is still, it became my all-time favorite restaurant. It still is today. Here it is. Yeah! (laughs) See, some of you are really classy. You do the beach house and fair enough, but you say, let's go to McDonald's. I'm on for lunch. Let me tell you, you know what you're going to get? A little, one of those little sandwiches called the Daily Double. Just a small burger with fries and a tall, largest Diet Coke with no ice you can get. They're going to, I'll tell you this. From God's mouth to my ears, they're serving that at the marriage feast of the Lamb. In heaven, they're going <laughs> to... Golden archers, it's gold! <laughs> all right. So all of that is to um, kind of get us an introduction to today's message and, so, and to the whole series. I want you to take your Bible, if you will, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, if you can see, the, if you don't know how to find it, this, grab one of the Bibles in the pew rack and you can see the page numbers behind me. For that matter, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home, all right, please? Seriously, take it home, it's our gift to you. And um, what we're doing today is we're stepping into a new six-week series that focuses on, um, well, it's kind of got a crazy title when you think about it, Eating with Sinners, but it really... The, the, the title come of the series comes from this, the stories that we have of Jesus' life and ministry. See, there are four biographies of Jesus in Scripture, four Gospels, they're called. Gospels means good news. There are four biographies written by four different fellows 
who um, tell us the story of what happened in Jesus' life. Some of them were eyewitnesses, and one fellow went back uh, a few years after Jesus was alive, and he went back and did an investigation and wrote a report. That's the book of Luke. And all of them, all those four biographies, the four gospels, give a variety of settings where Jesus would sit down and eat with people. Sometimes some of them were pretty crazy folk. I mean, he ate with drunks and prostitutes, embezzlers, some pretty low life, if you, if you will. But then he, on the other hand, would eat with really high society folk. He'd eat with very high religious leaders in the land. Some of those religious leaders were actually religious bigots. He'd eat with, his fa- with families and his own family and his disciples. And he used all, all, those settings, all of them, to tell people the reasons for his ministry. And that's the goal, is why did Jesus come in this, as we look at this in the weeks ahead? Sometimes he would use words, and often he would actually use the meal itself as an illustrated sermon to explain to people what his ministry was all about. And we have a real focal point in where we're headed with, these, with this six-week series, because I got a project for you at the end of this that I want you to be thinking and praying about in the coming weeks. Namely, we're going to have a special weekend of worship services on September 6th and 7th. We're actually going to have five services that weekend. We want you to think now about inviting your family and your friends who could come and maybe learn about First Christian Church, but more importantly, learn about Jesus Christ. And so put that on your calendar the weekend after Labor Day. We're anticipating a larger crowd that weekend. So as I said, we've got five services. But before we get to all that, and we'll give you more information about that as the weeks go along, I want to start the whole process today by learning how Jesus met with ordinary people. And you could say, ate his way across the geography of ancient Israel. He ate his way, if you will, into the stories of the lives of people. And he sat at tables with all kinds of folk, people like you, me, and frankly, us sinner-type people is who he met with regularly. And so read with me just one of these stories, Luke chapter 9, verse 9. We read, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Be aware that Matthew, this, that Matthew that Jesus is talking about is the guy who wrote this book. So this is, if you will, him writing in the third person, telling us what happened. He was there. He was an eyewitness. And so Matthew is telling us, hey, Jesus came by my booth and said, hey, Matthew, come follow me. And he's reporting on it after the fact. And so we read that while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house with many tax collectors and sinners, they came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus then has an answer. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come, he's saying, to call sinners. And so I'm going to see what that means, and perhaps to get our arms around the beginning of that, let's have a discussion about some of the characters who are in the story. For example, let's talk about, first of all, the Pharisees who are mentioned here. They're they're the ones who apparently, reading between the lines, weren't real thrilled that Jesus was eating with so-called lowlife, if you will. And why was that? Well, the Pharisees, they were a group of religious leaders in ancient Israel. Similar to the way some people are in our lives today. I mean, they were people who, prior to Jesus' life and ministry, a few generations before that, when they were first formed, if you will, as both a religious and a political party, their goal was to 
Man, we, we want to we be certain that our nation as Israel, as we think about our political life and our religious life particularly, we want it, we want it to be pure and be put together in the way in which God wants it to be put together. And so they were very concerned about Jewish spirituality and keeping it true to the design that God had put in place. But along the way, their motives got mixed up with their methods. And they came to the place where they were demanding religious purity from people. And those demands began to overtake the plans that God had for righteous living. They became, if you will, more interested in the outward forms of religion versus inward forms of Jewish spirituality. They got it backwards. And it became a problem for them. And, and Jesus just, I mean, he calls them on the carpet for it. For example, if you look later on in Matthew 23, it'll be on the screen. He, um, he acknowledges that he knows these Pharisees. And hey, you started out with great ideals a few generations ago, but now it's got out of whack. And he goes, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside the cup and dish are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Jesus, he called them hypocrites. It's a sad commentary for a group of people that really began their mission with very, with very noble ideals. Similar to people today, you know, people enter into business or perhaps to politics, entertainment, even to work in the, in the church, if you will, in Christian service. And they enter into those endeavors all with good ideas. We're going to serve people. But somewhere along the line, the pure motives get pushed aside by the methods. And the outward appearances take precedence over the inner heart. And in Matthew 9, that's what these people are all worried about, the Pharisees. They were, it's interesting. They have this, well, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's fascinating that he compares or equates tax collectors and sinners. Now, I would suspect that the IRS is not too thrilled with comparing tax collectors and sinners. And we want to go, well, why is that? I mean, because... It's not fair to say just because you're a tax collector, you're a sinner. And yet for some reason or other within scripture, it happens over and over. And we have tax collectors in our, in our congregation. You sinners, you. No, I mean, I mean, doesn't that feel weird to say, well, just because you're a tax collector, that makes you a sinner, that you get called out? Well, let me explain to you why the Pharisees were so upset with tax collectors. From the Jewish perspective, Tax collectors in the time of Jesus were culpable in two areas. First, they were working for the enemy. They were working for the Romans. The Romans were occupying Israel, and the money that the tax collectors collected was for Rome. It wasn't for Jewish interests. I mean, they were, well, you could consider the tax collectors of that day to be like, if you will, the French Vichy government that was installed by the Nazis during the German occupation of France during World War II. Remember that? You're from, perhaps you're familiar with that. That when Germany took, when Hitler took over France, he said to some Frenchman, you're going to be in charge. It was a puppet government. And they had to do what the Germans said. And the, the actual French government was in exile in, in Britain. And so... Once Germany was defeated and, and France was liberated and the Germans were pushed back, the leader of the French Vichy government was actually sentenced to death for, catch this, treason. 
Now that sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment, but you can imagine how much he was reviled for the rest of his life because he was working for the occupiers. He was a traitor. And that's how the people of Israel felt about the tax collectors. They were working for the Romans and they were viewed as absolutely disgusting. They were considered traitors. We have stories like that in our own national history. If we point to somebody and say, that person is a Benedict Arnold. We're referring to the American general who switched sides during the American Revolutionary War. At one point he was leading American troops and then he went to work for the British. You know, after the war, imagine what his life, his life was like here in America. He switched sides to the wrong side. The Americans won. And so he went to work, live in London, but you know his life in London was horrible. The Brits didn't like him either because they were able to look at him and say, you can't be trusted to hold to your ideals. He was a traitor. There's been an uproar in our present day about a traitor, perhaps. It's a great uproar in the US right now about the trade that took place two months ago for the White, by the White House when they traded five top Al-Qaeda leaders for one American soldier, Bo Bergdahl, remember? There's some indications, perhaps, and I really wanna put a big exclamation mark beside the word perhaps, perhaps the American Sergeant Bergdahl deserted his team in Afghanistan. There's some thinking that along that line that he, he actually left his team some five and a half, six years ago in order to join the Taliban. And when he got to the Taliban, they actually made him captive and held him as a POW for five years. I want you to watch the news this week because it'll, it, the scriptures will come alive to you if you keep this in mind. Keep this passage in mind as this week, Bo Bergdahl, Sergeant Bergdahl, is scheduled to meet with military officials led by a, an American general. And their challenges is the guy an American hero POW or he is a traitor? A lot of people have already decided in the public and they've heaped a lot of scorn on him and his family. But if it's determined that he acted like a Benedict Arnold, that he switched sides, then frankly, watch what happens this week. The White House will have a very difficult time in dealing with the public's outrage in giving up five Al-Qaeda senior leaders who we had imprisoned in, in Guantanamo Bay we gave them up perhaps for if he's a traitor. It's going to be very interesting. And we're, he will be labeled, if you will, a Benedict Arnold, if that is determined that that's the case. A traitor. And when you say, okay, why did the Pharisees not like the tax collectors? Because they were considered traitors. They were considered a Benedict Arnold. And so they were hated. You get it, don't you? It's not just that they were collecting taxes, but they were hated because they were traitors. Now, they were also hated because of the way in which they collected taxes. See, the Romans said, we, we want you to raise a certain amount of money. We built this road. We're going to give you a little booth on the road, and it's a toll road. And everybody who goes back and forth is supposed to pay a tax. And we expect this much money from you. However, if you can get more out of people, then you can extort money out of them. And that's how those guys are making money. And so we expect you to sort of collect this a certain amount of money. But if you can get more than that through extortion or bribery, that's yours to keep. And so consequently, they were hated. And we, we sort of slammed the, the Pharisees for their self-righteous attitudes. Those tax collectors. Because we read IRS tax collectors who are working for us 
and doing their job. When they saw tax collectors, they saw traitors, embezzlers, extortionists. I mean, how would any of us respond to a man who chose to regularly hang out with a traitor engaged in daily extortion and bribery? We'd say, I'm not going to dinner with those folk. That's how they were viewed, and that's why it was so scandalous, if you will, that Jesus went to have dinner with them, sit down at the table. Yet he was willing to risk his reputation in order to have dinner with folk like that. In fact, he even went further, if you know the rest of the story. Matthew here, the guy who we, he's the tax collector. Jesus meets him and says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. You know what that is? He's saying, hey, Matthew, come join my team. I see something in you that others don't see. Others see a traitor. I see somebody who can be redeemed and forgiven. Come join my team. And Matthew actually became one of the first 12 disciples. At first glance, we wouldn't eat with them. But Jesus did. Why? Well, the bottom line. Jesus' ministry, his life, the incarnation, the story of the gospel, the story of these biographies, the good news, the story of scripture is all about guys like these guys. It's about sinners and God's plan to change lives. And that's why Jesus came. This, this wasn't a difficult thing for him to figure out should he go and have dinner with them. There was no need to weigh, if you will, back and forth about a need to reach into those who had life needs. It was automatic because scripture says, Jesus himself says, the son of man speaking about himself the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It wasn't that he just showed up and hoped to passively help a few souls now and then. No. Jesus came seeking. He came searching. He came by design. He came looking. He came intentionally. He came purposely. He came deliberately. He came knowing that he would meet people in need. And he met people at their place, at their table. Came looking for lost people. Now, I know these days it's sort of fashionable in some circles to question this language about lost people. Because to indicate that some people are lost would also mean that some people are not lost. And that doesn't sound very egalitarian, does it? It's, it sounds unfair or impolite to brand some as saved and some as lost. And yet Jesus obviously saw two camps of people he talked about the healthy and the sick. He saw those who used to be lost and those who were still lost. In other words, he came knowing that some were still carrying the weight of past errors and mistakes. People who were sinners and still carried that sin. And he knew that that sin has an eternal impact. That sin, frankly, sends people to eternal hell. Then apparently there were also some people who had made just as many mistakes or errors, perhaps even far more to a significant margin. But those people had had their sins forgiven through Jesus Christ and they no longer carry that weight. Those are the saved, apparently, the ones who have, no longer have culpability of their sin. They are forgiven and headed to heaven. You know, entrance to heaven is not based on how good you are. All of us have something that's a little quirky, don't we? All of us have something that's a little bit off-center and off-base and, frankly, sinful. And if sin sends you to hell, then where are we all headed? We all deserve hell. 
All of us mess up at some point. But entrance to heaven is given and is based on forgiveness of sins. And scripture is quite clear about that. I could, I could preach up here, here all day, sit at this table and tell you all the bad things about sin. That won't fix sin's problem. Leading sinners to Jesus' forgiveness fixes sin's for problem. There are those who are saved, who have had sin forgiven. Their past errors no longer haunt them, now or in eternity. And there are those who are not yet saved. And Jesus is willing to talk to either group of people, those forgiven and those still carrying sinful sentences. And if many of us in this room are followers of Jesus Christ, then the question is begged, are we willing to do the same? Talk to both groups. Now, before you say, yeah, I'm willing to do both, I'll eat with sinners, then remember that if you say you're going to eat with sinners, then that means you have to identify some as saved and some as lost, some as forgiven, some as unforgiven. And I don't know how comfortable I feel about us going around, well, I'll eat with that group over there because they're the really sinful group. Doesn't that feel a little bit creepy? It does, doesn't it? What prerogative gives me or you the right to determine and say, well, that person's saved and that person's not saved. It's, it feels really, man, top down and really condescending, doesn't it? It's a problem. It's also a problem that there are plenty of um, modern day Pharisees within the church, capital C, who put unwise and non-biblical constraints on fellow Christians. Well, you know, sinners do this, saved people do that. Or say people don't, you know. As a pastor, I'm really aware of this problem. I, I know there are settings where I'm expected to act in ways that fellow Christians expect me to act. I'm aware that due to my role in this church, and if you will, by extension in the community, there are some places, I suppose, where I shouldn't go because that would cause other Christians to look at me with suspicion. I suppose I should only go to holy places, right? Let me bring this home a little further. If we follow Jesus Christ, we're to do what Jesus did. That means uh, we're to follow his example to be incarnational, to live with real people with real needs. We're, go, we're, to go, we're to go to the places where people need sin to be forgiven. We're to meet people where they are. And if we're, we're supposed to be willing to step into their lives, into their homes, sit with them at their tables and where they eat, where they work, where they play, where they live and do life with them. We're supposed to do that, right? And if we're supposed to go to where they are and where they work, and that's what Christians do, what about the folk who are standing behind the counter at the adult bookstore over on 22nd Street? You know, that place as you go under the train tracks down there? What about the people who are standing behind that counter? Now, I want to make it really clear. I want to make this really clear. I've never been in there, and I don't know if there is a counter in there. <laughs> but I suppose, I would suspect there's a cash register there, and someone has to operate that. And I just want to know, who is the pastor to those people? I mean, what would, what would happen if you drove by there one day this week and you saw my car parked in the parking lot? It'd be scandalous, wouldn't it? Man, the preacher's car is parked in the parking lot down there at that bookstore and preachers shouldn't go in there. 
But I wonder, who cares for the spiritual needs of the folk in that shop? The people, I suppose, who choose to work there. Who speaks into their lives? Could I go in that place as a Christian pastor with the sole purpose of meeting the employees and eventually introducing them to Jesus Christ without it being scandalous? Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to answer that question for you. I want it to be fodder for some discussion at lunch for you all today. And I, I have some answers to that question. I want to tell you this. You'll not have to check out the parking lot this week to see whether or not my car is there. Because if I go, I'm going to drive my father-in-law's. But I want you to wrestle with it because think about what Jesus did. He hung out with the people who the rest of the community didn't like or thought, you being spiritual, you shouldn't go be there. That's the type of setting the Pharisees were questioning. They didn't like the way that Jesus often ate with sinners. But Jesus never let their responses curtail the extent or scope of his ministry. His heart for people's needs was always larger than his concern for what self-righteous people thought of him. Jesus identified with those who needed forgiveness and allowed his ministry to follow that heart call. Can we do the same? It's not quite as easy as we think. In the coming weeks, we're going to examine some more of these meal settings in Jesus' ministry. And some of the issues raised are indeed quite provocative and will demand some thinking from you maybe some discussions around your table with your family or your friends. And I want to tell you why these sermons are coming your way. And I'm not, I didn't, this is the most important thing I'm about to say in the whole message today. And I didn't put it on the screen so that you would listen very clearly. Why, why is this so important? Here's why. Because we can't say that we care about God and then not care about what God cares about. Does that make sense? We can't say that we care about God and then, not care, and then not care about what God cares about. God cares for lost people and is willing to identify them as such. And we should too. And I know it's tricky. I, the judgmental thing, I get, but instead of judgment, judging, how about if we discern? Is that easier? Is that a little more? I'm asking the Holy Spirit, does discern help me to figure out who is it that needs the story of Jesus in his or her life? So, so, we're headed in a specific direction in the coming six weeks. Six, six weekends from now, the weekend after Labor Day, September 6th and 7th, we're going to have a whole series of special services here that day in this room and in all the rooms where the kids are. And the focal point is, can we help people learn about Jesus Christ? We're prayerfully anticipating that these messages, excuse me, will help you identify a person or a group of people who need to know of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so to that end today, I have an assignment for you. One is to go home, go to lunch today, go to the Cracker Barrel, go to McDonald's. I'll see you there. No. <laughs> go somewhere and have a discussion about the issues of the 22nd Street business. Who is it that's speaking to the lives of those people? All right. But then secondly... I'm asking you to commit to identify and pray for one person or one family unit that needs to know of Jesus Christ, needs to know of his forgiveness. 
Then plan, maybe between now and then, to sit down and have a number of meals with them. And get them here the weekend of September 6th and 7th. Five services that weekend. And while we wait for that weekend to come along, in the meanwhile, we'll look at Scripture and let's see what it means to eat with sinners when Jesus did that. Because here's what we're going to discover, friends. There's all kinds of people around the table, and we'll probably recognize a lot of them. As a matter of fact, I need you to know that you're sitting at the table, and so am I. Let's pray together. Lord, your heart for our community is the same heart that sent Jesus Christ to this earth in the first place, that he came to seek and to save the lost. Huh. Lord, I, I get the deal, God, where we don't want to be judgmental and say, well, you're saved and you're not and point at people. On the other hand, Lord, we want to have Jesus' eyes, eyes like his that would say, well, this person is redeemed, sins forgiven, this one needs help. We want to do it in a way, God, that's not condescending, in a way that's not top-down, but instead, Lord, in a way that is from a bunch of people holding hands, sitting around the table on chairs that are about the same size, eating with the same silverware and having the same meals. God, I pray for our community. Some 300 churches here, God, and yet there's thousands here in this community who don't know you. Give us, God, the heart for um, a willingness to care what you care about. And if it was so important that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, we want to get past the language and the name-calling and get into the business of ministry, into the business of, Lord, there, there, are, there are people sitting here, brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and sons and daughters and moms and dads who don't know you, friends. Those are the people we're talking about, God. So help us in the next few weeks to kind of put it together in a way that makes sense, in a way that is kind and gracious and generous and right call people to know you through Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.